When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is this banking crisis worse than we thought? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, March 20th, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. Before we get started, today's Daily Briefing is brought to you by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. That's craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Jared, welcome back to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I was joking around about, sorry to have you on in such a slow news week. Obviously, a huge amount happening out there. Big picture, what's your take? What's going on, man? Uh, Big picture is, uh, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I kind of have a theory around this Credit Suisse stuff. Um, So what is, let me just ask you a question. What is the feeling that you feel after we walk in on Monday morning and they did the take under on Credit Suisse and nothing crashed? and everything's okay what is what is the feeling that you feel uh a pit of anxiety at the base of my stomach waiting for what's going to fall next but also a little bit of relief right like you like a little like we didn't like we didn't walk in this morning with dow futures down a thousand you know like like it wasn't a catastrophe right what this seems like to me and the crazy thing is it's the exact same time of year march 17th 2008 is the day that Bear Stearns went under. Right. Mm. And it was a take under by JP Morgan. JP Morgan took him out at $2 a share, it later went up to $10 a share. But at that point, that was that was the point at which everybody was like we're going to die. This, you know, the, the financial system is going to collapse. But then we came in on Monday and the stock market was higher on Monday the 17th. And it continued to go higher, and stocks went up for the next three months. Stocks went up 17% until June of 2008. It was this huge counter trend rally, you know. So I'm kind of wondering. We have the same feeling today. We walk in. We walk in this morning, and Credit Suisse is gone, and nothing crashed, and the, the stocks are up about a percent. Like it seems very similar to me, and it makes me wonder. If this is not the ninth inning of the crisis that we're in, if that maybe we're in the third or the fourth inning and there's stuff left to play out. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about today. So that's a great question. How do you know? How do you know whether we should be feeling uh, anxiety or a sense of relief? What are the indicators that you look at to make the determination of where we are in terms of this cycle and these the innings, as you put it? 
Well, I think you guys have a chart from my newsletter that I got from Zero Hedge of borrowing at the discount window. I don't know if you want to put that up now. I don't know if you have. Yeah, let's bring it up. That's a great one. So this is from Zero Hedge. I've had a couple of people try to replicate this on Bloomberg and they haven't been able to. There's I don't know what function they were using, but let's just assume this is correct. And borrowing at the Fed's discount window is higher than it was, what it was during the pandemic and higher than what it was at the peak of the financial crisis. So if you remember, the discount window is where a bank can borrow directly from the Fed at a penalty interest rate. There's sort of a stigma associated with borrowing from the discount window. So banks try not to do it unless it's absolutely necessary. And what this is telling you is that there's a real need for liquidity out there. And banks are saying, screw it, I'm borrowing from the Fed anyway. And, you know, this far exceeds what happened during the financial crisis. So, you know, you asked me what inning are we in? Like this tells me there's a lot of other banks that are under stress. And per, this this probably isn't the last failure that we're going to experience. So does that cause you to have a pit of anxiety in the base of your stomach? What do you think about it? How do you handicap that going forward? Well, I never... I never really get, I, I don't get too anxious about the markets. I mean, I think that um, we're going to get some relief in the short term. I think stocks could rally for a bit, especially if the Fed does, if surprises everybody and actually declines to hike interest rates on Wednesday. Uh, there's there's basically a 27% chance of that happening. There's a 73% chance of them going 25. If the Fed doesn't hike on Wednesday, we're going to have a big risk on rally like for sure so right what do you think that might look like if uh, we don't see a hike what do you think the amplitude of that rally might be how do you forecast it uh at least two percent probably three in the s p yeah probably three percent it'll be big so i think there's some asymmetry around it but i i you know i will also say that you know for the fed to hike rates in this environment is absolute lunacy because they would be doing the exact same thing that they did over the last 12 months, which is hiking rates too far too fast, which put the banks in this position, which caused these bank failures. And then they're going to do more of it simply out of this organizational inertia because they said they were going to before and now they lose face if they don't do it. And, you know, this is this is how the central bank operates. Yeah, listen, talking of which, I wanted to take a look at a clip. Uh, and I should say today's RVDB clip is brought to you by CraneShares. Learn more about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Let's take a look at this clip. Uh, this is from a show called Will This Bank Meltdown Test the Fed's Resolve? Uh, the guest is Joseph Wang, hosted by our own Roger Hurst, uh, coming out today. A great clip and very germane to the points that you were just making, Jared. Let's take a look. In the 70s, we had a Fed chair, his name was Arthur Burns, and he was operating in a political climate very similar to ours today. So Arthur Burns, again, Fed chair trying to get rid of inflation, doesn't like inflation, hikes rates, okay, inflation goes down a bit, but then unemployment rises, growth slows, and then all these people start yelling at him, Arthur Burns, you're such a mean guy, look at the... You Look at all the unemployment you're, you're, uh, you're causing. And Arthur Burns says, yeah, 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 okay, so he cuts rates, and then inflation goes right back up. So we're in a very similar political climate where uh, the way that we make a trade-off in a society between inflation and unemployment is heavily skewed towards 
unemployment. We want people to have jobs. We want everyone to be, to be happy. So I think the risk is that the Fed is going to be very dovish as a bias. So they're going to hike or at least maintain a restrictive stance. But the moment that we have higher unemployment tick up, I think that their, their inclination is going to be to, to ease monetary policy. Interesting comments from Joseph Wang making reference to Arthur Burns, this idea that as soon as the Fed begins to see unemployment rise, the bias goes dovish. Jared, what are your thoughts? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, we haven't really seen unemployment rise yet. We saw it tick up two tenths uh, a couple of weeks ago from three, four to three, six. But um, no, just um, imagine in your mind that a couple of payrolls from now, maybe six months from now, unemployment is somewhere between four and a half and five percent. Try to imagine the politics around that. Try to imagine Elizabeth Warren. Try to imagine what a lot of Democrats are going to say about the Fed causing people to lose their jobs. I mean, the weird thing about this rate hike cycle is that we haven't seen that at all yet. So if we start to see it, it's going to put massive amounts of political pressure on the Fed, just what Burns had to go through in the 70s. Yeah, very well said. Listen, I know we were talking about some other things. I want to come back to the Daily Dirt Nap uh, and a point you made in it uh, about First Republic Bank. Uh, I don't know if we can pull that chart up on the screen, uh, but this is pretty ugly. It's off some uh, 90 plus percent on a trailing 12-month basis, uh, absolutely getting hammered. Not a great day today. It looks like it's off... Uh, Oh, about 47%, so nearly 50% First Republic Bank on the day. Uh, Jared, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, the big banks already put $30 billion in deposits into this, and that didn't fix the problem. So I'm kind of wondering, I mean, basically, there's, re there's really two outcomes here. When a bank is down 90%, there's really probably not much of a chance of a recovery. So it's going to be a take-under situation like what we have with Credit Suisse or it, they're just going to allow it to fail, which I kind of think is unlikely in this environment. So they're probably gonna find somebody to buy it for some nominal amount of money and it'll get subsumed into a larger bank and that's pretty much it. I think it's pretty unlikely uh, that uh, in this environment that uh, that the federal government's gonna let anything fail, uh, mostly because of the risk of capital flight from regional banks to the GSIBs, the globally uh, systemically important banks, that would be a huge shift in the economy. I, I just, do you really think, and listen, this is just my opinion, uh, but do you really think that anyone uh, in government has the has the, the sort of uh, desire to see that happen? Well, I'm not sure anyone in government is really thinking that far ahead, but regardless of what the government does, this is happening, this move of capital. I mean, we have 4,000 banks in the United States. And the, the, the top five have something like 40 or 50% of the assets, right? But we have thousands of little tiny banks, unlike Canada. Like Canada has a system where they have six big national banks and there are no smaller banks. Like what we have with this fragmentation in the United States is very, very unusual, but this decentralization that we have is actually a good thing. Right. If one small bank fails, it's not systemically important. And, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank failed, that was the 16th biggest bank, and that was somewhat systemically important. So, 
Yeah, the so-called big five banks of Canada. Uh, I think you're right. It does seem like it creates a lot more flexibility in the banking system, uh, the ability to have uh, these banks lend to niche uh, markets or verticals and obviously regional expertise as well. Uh, it, I wonder to what extent the great dynamic American economy that we have is based on this diversity uh, in the banking sector. Yeah, also, but keep in mind, this consolidation has been happening for a while. If you go back about 20 years ago, we had 10,000 banks in the United States. So we've been gradually consolidating, rolling up into larger and larger banks. And this trend just continues over time. And like you said, it's not a good thing. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, so, Jared, what else are you looking at? I, let me ask you this. Uh, with uh, Credit Suisse, uh, my old alma mater gave me my first uh, uh, major job in banking. Uh, difficult to see it go. Uh, talk a little bit about the implications for UBS taking over Credit Suisse. You know, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question. Um, yeah. The way that Credit Suisse has been trading, I mean, Credit Suisse put in a high in 2007. It has been going down for 15 years. And if you saw the press conference where they announced that UBS was taking it over, it was very much, it, it, I mean, the Swiss did it absolutely right. They had like 10 people on the dais. They had members of all parties. It was very clean. It was very antiseptic. They announced that the AT1 bonds were going to get zero. They announced that the equity holders were going to get something. There was no hemming and hawing. Like, this is the model for how you euthanize a large bank. But to answer you, the, the, the question you, you asked me was, what does this mean for UBS? I mean, like, I don't know what's inside of Credit Suisse, right? I don't, I don't know what derivatives exposure it has. I don't, I mean, obviously something isn't working, so I don't know what's inside of it. Hey, let me ask you this, a quick explainer. You mentioned the AT1 uh, bonds. This is really interesting in terms of a capital structure perspective to see bondholders uh, essentially getting wiped out while the common stockholders wind up with something. Obviously, it's in the nature of the capital structure, these uh, designs that were built to take first loss in the wake of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Talk a little bit about that capital structure, particularly for people uh, who have not studied bank capital structure closely, Jared. Well, I mean, it's really a question of about whenever a bank fails, like who should shoulder the losses, right? And in the United States in 2008, we had bailouts, right, where the federal government gave the big banks each $25 billion. They bought equity in the banks and they gave them equity capital. That was a bailout. In Cyprus, you had a bail-in where they simply took the depositor's money and bailed them out. Now, right. both, both of these are politically unappealing. For In one hand, you're using taxpayers' money. On the other hand, you're using depositors' money. What people eventually figured out was if you take the bondholders' money, nobody feels bad for them. <laughs> like nobody is crying any tears for Credit Suisse bondholders. So that's really, you know, from a, from a political standpoint, that's, that's, where the, that's, that's where the weakness is. So – yeah, I mean, it makes it makes total sense, and I think they're going to do that going forward. 
Yeah, it's also interesting to see what happened with SVB, uh, seeing a slightly different model there where you see the equity holders uh, getting wiped out. You see management getting fired. You see some of the unsecured creditors taking a haircut potentially, uh, and yet uh, the the depositors being backstopped. So you have all these different models on bank resolution uh, and, and essentially who, as you say, shoulders the losses. Yeah. Um... I honestly, I think that's probably, that's probably, there's no good way to do it. That's probably the best way to do it. Yeah, it's true. There is no good way. But we should talk about the fact that these uh, these bonds were especially structured to take those first losses. Uh, one of the terms that you hear uh, out there is COCOs, uh, these idea of contingent convertible bonds, uh, bonds that uh, have these characteristics of equity uh, and fixed income simultaneously uh, that absorb first losses. I mean, this is something that a lot of thought has gone into since the 2007-2008 uh, crisis. Not to say we're definitely going to get it right this time, but certainly there's been a lot of innovation around figuring out precisely as you say, how to deal with who shoulders the loss. I couldn't have said it any better. You nailed it. Yeah. All right, Jared, what else is on your screen? One of the things that I was looking at earlier in the day is gold. Uh, I know that you uh, are a close watcher of gold. Uh, what do you see happening right there? Well, on Friday, we had the fourth largest, fourth largest, fourth highest close in gold in history. We're getting close to all-time highs. And today on a day where it was risk on and rates were down a lot, uh, the bond market was rallying, gold wasn't down that much. It was down, I believe, six bucks today. So, um, you know, it, a, a banking crisis tends to be really, really good for gold. You know, there's really, there's, I'm trying to think of a scenario in which gold loses here, and I honestly can't. Yeah, gold trading right now around 2000 uh, on my screen. Uh, do you think that that's a psychologically important level? Is there, uh, is there some, uh, is it potentially uh, a floor, a ceiling? Uh, is there resistance there? What do you think? Well, we've been back and forth across 2000 a bunch of times now. I don't think that has much psychological significance anymore. Uh, the all-time highs, I believe, are at about 2060. Um, I think that's the next level of resistance. But once you get through the all-time highs, then who knows where we go from there. So I do want to say the other thing that I've been looking at, I've been following very closely, is short-term rates. Uh, we talked a little bit before the show about multi-standard deviation moves and short-term rates. Yeah. The move in two-year notes was actually a 13.6 standard deviation event. Wow. and. The drop in yields was the greatest over a three-day period since the crash of 1987. Now, a lot of that has to do with, it doesn't really, it's not a really reflection of the magnitude of the crisis. It's really a reflection of the positioning going into it and how the hedge fund community in particular, but also treasury trading desks at banks were all leaning towards higher rates. They were all short twos. They were short Fed funds. They were short SOFR in massive size because it was a trade that worked and kept working. And Powell just announced the day before that he was going to continue to hike rates. It seemed, it seemed like a no-lose proposition. And so when Silicon Valley Bank failed, it was, a, it was one of the biggest squeezes I've seen in my career, which tells you a lot about how you have to pay attention to positioning.
Yeah, by the way, if you're not looking at uh, to your treasury yield chart, let me just describe this for you, what we're seeing. I'm looking at a 90-day chart right now, uh, going back to uh, 1220, right before Christmas, uh, trading at about four, uh, 426 basis points. It basically then rolls up to 3.8, breaking the 500 basis point uh, barrier, coming up uh, five, uh, 5.06, and then you just see the plunge that you've been talking about here, Jared. This just incredibly steep sell-off, trading right now at three spot nine five five uh, on my terminal. Pretty extraordinary rate trajectory. Yeah, and what that says about the future path of Fed funds is that, you know, regardless of what happens on Wednesday, whether the Fed goes twenty five or they do nothing, like we're pricing in cuts by the end of the year. And this has happened before with the front end of the yield curve. We, you know, we priced in cuts, then we priced them out. This has happened a couple of times. But honest to God, I really think this is going to happen. And I do think you're going to see probably by the end of the calendar year, at least 50 basis points of rate cuts. At least that's what the curve is pricing in. So. Chad, lots of questions. And I mean, lots of questions coming in for you right now. Want to hit those? Sure. Let's do it. First question from a regular viewer, Paul English. Jared, where do you see opportunity right now? Where are you bullish or bearish? Uh, gold and short-term rates. That's where the opportunities are. Yeah. Uh, wh what's your forward trajectory uh, forecast for short-term rates? Uh, I mean, honestly, I think I think twos are going to trade to somewhere between three, three and a half in yields. Um, I think they, you know, we, in spite of that massive squeeze, I don't think the real squeeze has even started yet. I think there's still a lot of people hanging around in those positions. Um, this reversal in short-term rates, I mean, if you're trading Fed funds or SOFR or Euro dollars or something like that, I really think that's where the opportunity is. You know, I actually, I was positioned going into this pretty well. Now I'm trading pretty small. You know, like I said, my house is being built, so I'm not doing anything in really big size. But I was long a lot of gold, and I had positions in Fed funds and also Bax futures in Canada, and those have all worked out great. So I think that's going to continue to work. Okay, let's keep going. Lots of questions coming in. Uh, Dan Black, time to load up on XLE, he asks. Uh, I should say that's the Energy Select Sector Spider Fund. I think we're pretty close. Um I think we're pretty close. XLE actually went ex-dividend today, paid a pretty big dividend of about 81 cents or something like that. So that's if you're looking at it, I don't know if it's up or down, but I know it went ex-div. Um, yeah, I think I think we're getting down to tag ends of this energy bear market. You know, I've been pretty, I've had my finger on the pulse of the sentiment and people are starting to get nervous. You know, a lot of the energy bulls are starting to get very nervous. And of course, we're down into the range where Biden said he would refill the SPR. You know, that's like, he said he would refill the SPR before below 70 or 72, and we're trading at 67 right now. So there is sort of that implied put or floor on oil prices. So, you know, I don't, I like to try to time things exactly. And I, I, I don't, I don't seem to have the ability to time this exactly, but I think we're at least in the zone where you could take a position right now. XLE, I should say, up 2% on the day. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, next question comes to us from Gannon McRavey. 
Jared's take on Bitcoin, I should say trading right now at 27,957. So just a spot under 28K, uh, which it had crossed, I think, up to 28.5 on the day earlier. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I'll say about Bitcoin is that the crypto guys are starting to get a little bit loud and proud out there on Twitter. Uh, they're, they're, they've come out of their hidey holes and they're starting to you know, talk about how great crypto is again. Um, makes me a little bit nervous. I think we have a little bit more to go. I think we could get to 30,000. But I'm seeing sentiment. What I'm saying is I'm seeing sentiment turn. I'm seeing sentiment turn in real time. So uh, but then again, like, you know, if my prediction that we're going to this banking crisis, this is going to continue for another six months, then, yeah, I mean, it's possible that Bitcoin has quite a bit of upside from here. So is there a correlation uh, between hubris and loud and proud on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the same that. thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's one from Mr. Wright. What if they raise interest rates and the printers turn back on? Well, they're not going to do QE, at least not at this meeting. Um and probably, wow, I, I, I kind of hesitate to say under what circumstances they would ever do QE again. I suppose it could happen. Um, I He's think saying raising, raising, uh, raising rates while, while, while doing QE. Yeah, I don't think so. So it's, it's like letting the air conditioner and the heater fight it out. You know, Powell is really focused on the balance sheet, and he's—I mean, the Fed balance sheet is whatever. It's you know. Eight nine billion dollars or something like that. So I think that it is it it is going to be a while before they stop QT. It is going to be a while before they stop rolling off the balance sheet. It, they may, like you said, having the air conditioner and heater fight it out. They may even do rate cuts and still be rolling off the balance sheet. That is possible. So. Interesting. Okay, next question. Uncle Robbie, question. How does Jared feel about commodities, copper and oil? Thanks, Ash. Well, thank you, Uncle Robbie. Great question. Um, wait for the first rate cut, or at least when the first rate cut starts to get priced in. Wait for the first rate cut. Now, this, this, is, this is kind of the playbook that you follow, like whenever the Fed starts to inject liquidity in and, and commodities start to rally again. Like... The, the, if you look at the 2021 and 2022 returns of commodities, they couldn't be more different. In 2021, they were up 60, 80, 70 percent. In 2022, they were all down 20, 30 percent. Like I, we really need a turn in monetary policy like that all clear moment to invest in commodities again. Okay, next question. Trillion X, Jared, KRE or XLF long? Uh, of course, that is uh, Spider S&P Regional Bank ETF and Financial Select Sector Spider. Uh, honestly, I would pick KRE. I would absolutely pick KRE. Um, so that's more, more, more regional exposure versus more big bank exposure. Yeah, I would pick KRE. I think that um, it, it, once we get past some of the, what happens to First Republic and we get kind of this all clear, uh, I think you could see KRE go up 15, 20%, something like that. Um, KRE is going to have a lot more beta, let's put it that way. Yeah, very well said. More beta indeed. Uh, Andrew Brown, does money velocity slowing play a part in the stagflation ability to freeze the economies? I pay zero attention to money velocity at all. None. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything. 
It's a great answer. I'm glad, <laughs> glad you're honest about that. That's fantastic. <laughs> David Stiles, what does Jared think about the Biden administration and NY using the bank crisis to debank crypto Coinbase, looking to create a non-US platform, London Calling, he says. I don't know a lot about this. I have to defer to you. Um, maybe you should answer this question. Uh, look, I think there's an open question about to what extent uh, they're using uh, this crisis to debank crypto. There's been a lot of uh, consternation and back and forth on this point, uh, Darren, uh, David. Uh, obviously, talk about uh, so-called Operation Choke Point 2.0, Nick Carter. Uh, we have that conversation, Nick and I, on Real Vision Crypto, where we talk about that very issue. There was a lot of interesting stuff going on around Signature and Signet. Uh, there was some, some thinking uh, that perhaps, uh, you know, this is sort of internet Twitter chatter, uh, asking the question, did uh, the Fed close down Signature Bank because of crypto? Uh, you know, I think uh, you'd have to be a total conspiracy theorist, theorist to believe that they shut down Silicon Valley Bank as a, as a prelude to doing this. Uh, look, I think it's interesting. There was a lot of back and forth on this as well about whether or not uh, they were going to be shutting down Signet as a condition of the purchase uh, of Signature Bank. Uh, there was reporting that suggested that they were. Then the following day, uh, reporting came out and said, no, they weren't. I think we'll just have to wait and see. In terms of uh, New York, I think what uh, David may be referring to here is uh, the suit that's been filed in New York Superior Court, excuse me, New York Supreme Court, I should say, uh, by the Attorney General uh, here, Letitia James, uh, who is uh, is uh, clear is, has declared for the first time in court uh, that Ethereum is in fact a security. It's interesting that it's happening in New York State Supreme Court, not in the Southern District of New York, not at the federal level. This is very interesting, David. Look, uh, I think uh, I I find this space to be incredibly interesting. I don't think it's going away anytime soon, uh, but I think there could be certainly short-term headwinds from a legal, regulatory, and compliance uh, perspective on this space. Governments at the state level and especially at the federal level uh, and internationally as well have a great deal of power uh, to influence things in the short term. I think secular trends are very hard to kill. Uh, I think that crypto really is the digitization, the internetization of money. I don't think it's going away. I could be wrong about that, of course, uh, but that's just my belief. London Calling, that's an interesting point as well. Look, I think that it would be an absolute tragedy for the United States to lose its competitive leadership position in the digital asset space on decentralized assets. If you look at the tremendous uh, increase in innovation that we saw in Silicon Valley during you know, essentially my whole adult life, it would be a tragedy for that to get forced offshore. Uh, hopefully this gets resolved. Hopefully cooler heads prevail. I would say, David, it's a very complicated system. You have a, uh, you have essentially, you have federal law uh, and then you have agencies that are associated with the executive branch, but are in fact indeed uh, independent that get to file suit in federal court uh, against entities that they believe are violating those laws. Ultimately, the real solution to this is I think Congress needs to act. Congress needs to bring in some legislation that allows for this innovation that addresses their concerns uh, more broadly. But uh, this is going to be an interesting time. And we do all of this on Real Vision Crypto. And uh, go and take a look. Check it out. Uh, you'll hear a lot more detailed discussion about just that. Okay, next question comes to us from Bo Nito. Jared, what's your take on Biden vetoing the reverse ESG investing bill? You know, I I told you I was watching CNBC today and I saw something about that. I didn't I didn't really dig in. Um, what do you know what this is? I don't. I have uh, been uh, back to back all day. 
In fact, I, I think just that had I th- a conversation with Nuriel Rubini right. talking about some of the risks we're looking at. I think this was something about, I guess, the the law that was passed by Congress was requiring managers to not use ESG policies for retirement accounts or something like that. Um, and Biden veto. Well, there's no way it's going to survive a veto. Let's put it that way. So I guess that's my take on it. Yeah, I wish I knew more about this story, Bonita. I will definitely check it out uh, and we'll talk about it maybe tomorrow. Uh, Next question comes to us from Dan Black. Very short and simple to the point. Short USD. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I think so. With a gun to my head, I would say so. But you you probably have seen me on the daily briefing a bunch of times over the last couple of years, and that's pretty much my answer all the time: short USD to everything. So, <laughs> Jared, unfortunately, we've hit four thirty. I wish we could have this conversation all evening. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, I think uh, I think we have bullish risk in the short term, and I have I think we have bearish risk in the long term, and I think that. Credit Suisse was probably not the end of the crisis, but maybe the middle, uh, if not the beginning. Uh, We're going to get some relief over the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to see what happens. So a Churchillian end of the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Jared, I really enjoyed doing the show with you every time. I hope we can do it more often. Thanks. Thanks, Ash. Thanks so much for joining us, man. And thank you so much for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. And remember, today's show is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Once again, that's craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. We'll be back tomorrow with Jeremy Schwartz. Thank you. See you then. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.